This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. On average, the use of entry-level associates on legal matters boosted client costs by 17.5% from 2007 to 2011, or in dollars and cents. These entry-level associates cost $72,000 more than their counterparts with greater experience, according to one recent study. In response, more and more clients are reluctant to pay for the services of inexperienced lawyers, even as junior associate salaries continue to rise. I'm ABA Journal Business of Law reporter Rachel Zahorsky, and joining me now to discuss the market for first-year associates are Craig Rayburn, Managing Director of Timetrics Legal Analytics, who co-produced the Real Rate Report, an analysis and report on law firm rates, trends, and practices, along with the Corporate Executive Board, and Stuart Dodds, the Director of Global Pricing at Baker & McKenzie. Craig, as the chorus of clients who refuse to pay for what they see as entry-level lawyers on the job training grows louder, and law firms adjust how cases are staffed or simply remove associates from matters to accommodate those client demands, Will the profession suffer from this impasse, and how can it ensure its investment in the future? Well, Rachel, I think that is a fantastic question, and if I can take a moment, when we sat down with the corporate executive board who we collaborated with on the Real Rate Report back in, in January, we were looking at lots of different trends in the marketplace and kind of what, you know, what, were, what was the buzz that was happening, and this was one of those topics. It jumped front and center to us, and we said, in this year's report, we need to kind of look into that. We need to, as we hone and look at the data that we have in the LegalView database, uh, and we extracted 27 million hours of legal services for the real rate report, we said we need to dive into what's happening with first-year associates, or as we've referred to them in the report, entry-level associates. And the first question that we knew we had to ask is exactly the one you've pointed out, which is, well, does it really cost any more? You know, and the data shows us it truly does. It costs more for those litigation cases where entry-level associates are working on them. The next question that we kind of dove into is we said, well, What's happening? Everybody is claiming they're not paying for first-year associates. Is that really true? What, is, what does the data say? And what we found so interesting is that when we looked into it and we said in 2009, from the data, there was 7% of all hours billed was coming from first-year associates. When we looked at that same kind of pool in 2011, it had dropped significantly down to 2.9%. It was a lots of pretty stark uh, drop. And there's definitely a response from the law firms uh, respecting kind of the request of their clients not to put first-year associates on these types of cases. The question, though, that you've asked, if I can kind of just go back to that, of how does this impact our industry? I think that it, it requires us all to take pause and to understand really the motivation behind it and that corporate law departments today are facing a ton of pressure as the business of law evolves to really not necessarily reduce their spend, but to demonstrate the value that they are getting for every dollar they're spending. Law firms on the on that same, you know, um, area are trying to figure out how they're responsive to that. And so if what we start doing as an organization or as a 
a marketplace is removing those entry-level associates so that they don't have a seat in our organizations. I do worry what's going to happen to us in 10 years. Coming out of school, we all have a strong background in the theoretical, but how do we allow these people to gain their experience? I think that requires all of us to kind of think about that and understand how do we pull them along to make sure that the business of law and the practice of law, almost more importantly, are in good hands, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Stuart, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you, Craig. My thoughts, I mean, having been in this area, this sort of space for the last four to five years in a role similar to the one I'm in now, it's not a new message. I remember going through the global financial crisis in 2008, and there were many client requests for them looking for more senior people. They wanted the gray hair on the job because they had cost constraints. They wanted to make sure they were getting what they perceived to be value for money. And that meant at that time there was a lot of people saying that we're not going to pay for trainees, we're not going to pay for new associates, and if you as a law firm want to put them on the job, you're doing so at your own dime. I think what underlies that is actually a very clear message, and that message is that law firms need to take a step back and become more efficient. A, a recent survey came out with a, a startling statistic, which is that 95.8% of law firms here in the U.S. see that practice efficiency is the key theme and it's a permanent trend that's going to to stay for for uh, well forever it's probably something that we need to be very very conscious of as law firms we need to address as law firms and messages such as the one that, that rachel mentioned at the start help drive this change it helps build that impetus and Stuart, when we spoke earlier, we talked about the driving force for this coming from the law firms. We also talked about different types of law firms, some who just want to kind of bury their heads in the sand a bit and wait until the pressure comes from clients to respond. Others who, when clients demand that associates be removed from matters, simply respond in like and take associates off matters or write off hours. And then there's a third breed of firms who are looking at ways to do things more efficiently and still include associates on matters so that they can get that valuable training. Can you give us some practical examples at your firm in ways they've been able to use associates more efficiently so that they're getting the training that they need to prosper in their careers and, and become more experienced lawyers, and the clients are also happy with the rates and billing and staffing on certain matters? I think probably a, a more general comment, and our firm is one that does this, and there are many other firms that do so as well, is actually making sure that whatever commercial arrangement you put in place with the client more truly reflects the value of the matter to that client. So that means moving away in many respects from the billable hour. It means putting together either fixed fees or uh, success or contingent fees in place of the client, where actually they recognize the value of the work that's being done, irrespective of who's being who's doing that work. Of what certainly we're saying, and again, I know a number of other firms in, in the U.S. are doing this as well, is that they're making sure that they staff their matters appropriately. There's a very big consequence for them internally of not staffing a matter appropriately. It impacts margin. It impacts uh, the client satisfaction. It also impacts, as you touched on earlier on, the teams to be able to develop their specific skills. So one thing that we're saying is actually certainly that I believe is that we're seeing law firms being much more proactive in thinking through how do we best make sure we put the appropriate fee arrangement in place for this piece of work. Not necessarily alternative, it's a, it's a word that certainly at Baker McKenzie we don't like. Alternative means untried, untested. It should be an appropriate fee approach which reflects more truly the value of the work that we do for the client. And that means that there's some hard decisions to be taken. It means that we have to think through, well, who is the right person for this job? How do we make sure that they get the skills that they need for that job? What oversight do they need for that job? And it's challenging. There's no quick fix, but the sooner law firms begin on this journey, the better it is for all of us. 
to that very end, what, you know, what I found interesting is a few weeks ago, we got together with our executive advisory uh, council, and that's made up of, you know, some of our top clients, and we were talking about this very topic of first-year associates and what their thoughts were, and I was interested in the dynamics in the room as people were describing kind of, you know, their feelings on first-year associates and the value. They compared them almost in some ways to paralegals and, and were, in their, in their mind, in this group's mind, an experienced paralegal, they said clearly, they thought was of greater value to them than a first-year associate. But as we continued in the dialogue, just what you were saying, Stuart, uh, emerged. And people said, but at the end of the day, what this is all about for us is making sure that we feel like we're getting the right value for the product that we're looking for. So whatever the case is, if this is kind of a bet-the-company case, then we want to have the best of the best. And it's not going to matter almost. But if this is kind of a commodity litigation or a commodity type of contract, we're more than open to having the first-year associate work on it with kind of the proper you know, backstop in place to do that. We just need to make sure that the value uh, is kind of the right value to the organization. Going back to the value that associates bring to a case and also the value to associates of being able to work on matters, that's how you gain experience, that's how you grow in your career. To that end, and perhaps, Stuart, you can address this from the law firm side, does the training model for associates need to be adjusted as well in addition to looking at ways cases are staffed, perhaps not as many people are on them, not as many hands touching files, et cetera, et cetera. How do we make sure that associates are getting the experience and enough experience that they need so that their growth isn't stalled while they wait for work to come or, or the proper work to come that are going to help them to advance? Thank you, Rachel. I recognise that you know some of these questions actually probably fall out without out with my immediate uh, scope of expertise, so I won't answer all of them. But the ones that I can answer are those around the training and certainly some of the things that I've uh, seen happen in, in the firm that I work for and also my previous firm, where there's a much greater emphasis on making sure that all the way through the career track that people are aware of the value of good project management skills. Now, why is that relevant? Well, how it's relevant in this context is it is about how do we make sure that we delegate work appropriately? How do we identify the cost of doing that work? How do we communicate with the client the value of the work that's being done? And how do we make sure that we provide the right training and skills to the team that's on the job rather than just the person who's sitting next to us who can do the job, but we're maybe not sure if they're actually best qualified. So one of the things that we and a number of other firms are very much investing in is ensuring that our attorneys are, are trained in project management disciplines, because that is one part of addressing this issue. It's not the only part, but it's something that is very, very important. And certainly one of the things that I've seen over the last six to nine months developing are many more clients requesting not only how we as law firms will demonstrate our efficiency on the matters that we will do for the law firm, uh, the client, uh, with examples based on our, our experience, but also now how are we implementing project management disciplines into the work that we do, both internally as a firm and also how will we do that with the client. So it's becoming, I think, one of the key selection criteria for a number of clients about who they choose to engage with. I think one thing that you, I'd, I'd like to expand upon a little bit that the real rate report really hit on is this project management, more efficient project management. It's not just about lowering rates. It's not just about cutting the number of people and, and helping other people pick up the slack that are on a case, but truly putting the right people with the right experience on a matter. Oftentimes, that goes back to the way the firm is actually structured. And in my reporting, I found that some firms, perhaps, although they don't want to admit it, have difficulty because there's so much internal structure that needs to be changed. 
in order to change the, the staffing management, the efficiency, the rates, and ultimately give the client more value. Can uh, Craig or Stuart, would one of you guys like to jump in on perhaps one or two specific challenges that firms really need to hone in and zero in on and perhaps some advice on how they can address that when saying, all right, we need to look at our rate structure, we need to look at our billing structure differently, we need to offer a variety of fees, but there are things internally that need to be addressed or changed in order for us to do that well. Yeah, I think in many ways this is Craig. I think Stuart is probably better qualified to answer that from kind of a, a law firm perspective, but what I would share is, you know, as our team has looked at the data within the LegalView database and, you know, analyzed staffing allocations and uh, profiles, what has become clear, and we, clear, and we actually have uh, published this in a study that will come out uh, this week, the Huron Impact Study, is that over the course of the last three years, the leverage models uh, from kind of partners to associate have changed dramatically. And that what you see is there is a lot more partner time, right, being placed on matters across the board, across the industry, across geography, going from I think an average of 37% to 44%. And what the data tells us is that there is a shrinking of the associate ranks. And that's the reason for much of that effort. And that, just like when we started this off, Rachel, and you said, well, is there cause for concern that people aren't willing to invest perhaps in entry-level associates? I think there's also a greater dynamic here of as we lose associates across the board, who is going to be prepared to take the torch you know, at the next level? And I think that does get to, to some degree, the law firm models, uh, which are you know, very much focused on kind of partner and equity partners. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think we all would agree that you know, when push comes to shove, you know, those that run the business and own the business are going to be the last ones to kind of you know, part company uh, with the business in some ways. And so it's a model shift I think we have to think about and embrace as we think about this evolution within the business of law. But, Stuart, I'm interested in some of your thoughts. Thanks, Craig. I, certainly from a personal perspective, I can, I can agree completely with what Craig was saying a minute ago. I think one of the other things that, you know, that sprung to mind from my perspective, certainly given the, the role that I play, is that there are a number of different types of matters that we do on behalf of our clients. And, and Craig mentioned earlier on the, the bet the company type work. You know, that's always going to be very, very senior heavy. There's reputation and expertise type work that people do. Uh, and again, that's typically going to be very senior in, in its, its um, experience level. But then there's a lot more of the routine or commoditized work that certainly major law firms do and indeed a number of smaller law firms do as well. And I think for those particular types of matters, there's a, a specific challenge, not only in terms of pricing, because there are more people out there who can provide those services, but I think there's also the challenge about how we change the delivery model to deliver those services, because those are the areas that typically had lots and lots of associates doing work. So if you think, think of a, a litigation matter, there used to be lots of people doing discovery. Well, there's now e-discovery options. We can use uh, contract attorneys, paralegals, outsource providers, etc. So what I think is is needed within the profession more generally is us being much more critical and saying, well, what type of services are we actually providing? How do we best resource those particular types of matters? And what actions do we need to do uh, following on from that? And particularly in the routine and the commoditized areas, I think there has to be a very clear and objective look back to say, we can't do what we did yesterday. We have to do things more efficiently. How are we now going to staff and resource and put precedents in place to allow us to do that while still being A, profitable, but B, also meeting our clients' requests for an appropriate fee. Stuart, I think we could dedicate an entire other podcast to ways firms can address all of those issues and all of the actions that they can take. Unfortunately, we have to end today's talk there, but I want to thank you both, Craig, Stuart, for sharing your insights 
joining us today, and I really do hope that you'll come back for another discussion. Um, our listeners, they can find more information on the Real Rate Report on ABAJournal.com on the Law by the Numbers landing page. And I also encourage any listeners to add their voices to this podcast and others in the comment section on ABAJournal.com where they can find continuing coverage of the changing landscape of the legal profession and to subscribe to future ABA Journal podcasts on iTunes. I'm Rachel Zahorsky, and thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast.